Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. Today, we're here with Maria Curran, and we will be discussing how a child therapist can help families that are going through a divorce. So today, we're with Maria Curran who has a practice in town called the Center for Creativity and Healing. And she is a therapist that is very well respected among our divorce lawyers for all of the very hard work uh, that she does that we run across in some of our more difficult cases. And I'm sure she gets to work with cases that don't involve uh, divorce lawyers too, but we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. Well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and and what you do and, and talk about your practice for a minute. Okay. Well, I've been in practice in Charlotte since 1994, so just finished out 25 years. And I primarily work with children and families. So I do work with all ages, children as young as three, you know, through older adults, but typically do a lot more child and family work now in the area of separation, divorce, or blended family issues. Um, I also work with, you know, more mainstream anxiety, depression kinds of things, but there aren't as many therapists who specialize in, in the separation divorce area. So those of us who do tend to get a fair amount of referrals. Exactly. Um, and that's why the ones of us that practice just um, divorce law or law involving custody and children and, and family conflicts um, end up developing relationships with the good, as we call them, prof- healthcare professionals out there because it is important to have um, a well-versed and experienced healthcare professional when you have complex issues. I agree with that. And I also think it's important for therapists to be able to work well with the legal um, side of the picture. And to that end, in 2014 and 2015, I co-chaired some joint uh, legal and mental health conferences at the Mecklenburg Bar um, around dealing with high conflict and complex family situations. Um, I think I, I try to do my part on my end professionally to to teach therapists how to interact with attorneys and how to try to partner with attorneys to help move families forward and help everybody adjust to the new family dynamic of living in two separate households. Which is challenging for the adults, let alone the children. It is. <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning. So you're a parent and you either are, are divorcing or, or sense that one's coming and you have a question about, wow, I wonder if, you know, I need to take my child to therapy. How does one answer that question? What what are the options if you if you think your child needs therapy to help them cope with a divorce or separation? Well, you know, sometimes parents will contact us with that, exactly that sort of question. It's really hard for me to be able to answer a question about a child I've never met. 
or family dynamics that I've not observed myself. It's typically part of our process to complete an assessment, which includes meeting with both parents, sometimes together if the parents are co-parenting well enough to be able to do that. Sometimes they prefer um, separate intake processes and we will accommodate that. Then um, we usually ask to meet with the child three to five times or children um, individually. Don't meet with siblings together unless the issue is between the children. Mm-hmm. And then we circle back around to the parents and give them feedback and sort of our, our overview. And that can range from, you know what, they're coping really well given the circumstances, but we've established a relationship. So if you hit a bump in the road at some point, give us a call, you know, you can come back in and we'll just address things on an as needed basis. So that's one scenario. Another scenario might be that, yeah, we think that your child is maybe struggling with the transition. Some children have a really difficult time with the back and the forth. And so it's helpful sometimes to do some, and we do play therapy and expressive arts therapy. We have animal assisted therapy. Um, We're a very Mm -hmm. child-friendly facility. And so children generally don't feel like it's a clinical, sterile place. Young children often think we live there because we have snacks, we have dogs, we have art, we have toys. They think they're coming to your house. They do. Yeah. They absolutely do. And so, you know, and, and that's great. We we want them to feel comfortable and relaxed and at home. But if if they are struggling, sometimes it's just helpful to have a neutral party who can be accepting of the child's feelings and where the child feels like they can say what they need to say or express. And sometimes that comes through play. Sometimes that comes through artwork or dramatic play, that sort of thing. Not going to react to whatever the child feels because, you know, as a therapist, I'm not affected by it. And children can be very protective of their parents and something I try to help parents understand. And so you can have a close relationship with your child, but if your child is worried, well, if I say that I'm sad and I already know that daddy's sad, I might make daddy sad and I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to tell him how I feel. So it, it can be, the withholding can be protective in some cases, in a lot of cases, actually. And so, so sometimes just, I guess, giving them a place for safe release can correct help them cope. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. so that may be, you know, another sort of feedback or assessment is I think it could be helpful to periodically have them come in and just sort of continue to monitor and check in with them. So that that might look like once a month mm-hmm. um, or every six weeks. Sometimes children are struggling more intensely mm-hmm. with the separation. They have a lot of grief about the fact that their parents aren't together anymore. And and that can vary. I mean, sometimes it's the what they perceive as loss of relational time with each parent. Sometimes it's about having to move, having to change schools. Sometimes there's just too many changes too quickly. So in those cases, more intensive therapy, maybe weekly or biweekly, would be recommended until things settle down a little bit or the child feels better able to cope. I mean, what we know from the research is that most children, 75% of children, are pretty well adjusted within one to two years post-separation. There's there's that other 25% that still struggle, and, and we can talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. But But most kids do have a period of time where it's difficult for them just as it is for the parents. And so do you find that it's beneficial to work with 
the children alone or do you incorporate the parents in with the therapy? How does it work when the family unit is changing and they're no longer really one unit? That's a great question. I was trained way back in the dark ages (laughs) in grad school um, to use more of an Adlerian approach. So I was trained that, that the parents are almost always going to be part of the process. And so with younger children, typically, um, I may ask the parents when I come to the waiting room, do we need to check in before I start the session with the child so that I can get an update um, and get some feedback about how things are going? It's one way that I know is is what I'm doing helping. And are there any changes in, in what's happening at home? But even with older children, pre-adolescents and adolescents, I try to periodically touch base with the parents. Sometimes in those situations, it's more effective to have a separate parenting meeting or session and, and not have that infringe on the time with the child. Every, you know, every family situation is a little different, but my paperwork even says that working with parents, that I work with parents on parenting issues as is indicated and therapeutically appropriate given the situation. And in these kind of situations, most of the time, that is appropriate and is helpful. Sometimes if the parents are working with their own individual therapist and and we have permission to communicate, some of that feedback will flow that way. But it's it's rare that I don't at least periodically include parents. And certainly if there's an issue going on that needs to be addressed between a parent and a child or parents and the child or the parents themselves, if they're not able to communicate very well on their own, then I would offer to assist with that. Sometimes though, during the assessment process, it becomes clearer to me that it's really more appropriate for me to serve the entire family because the issues that the child is struggling with are systemic in nature. And so if that's the case, I'm gonna present that to the parents and and you know ask that they agree to that process. And so that allows me a little more fluidity in terms of who I'm working with when, in, in sometimes in dyads, sometimes in triads, um, or more, depending on how big the family is. Sure. Sometimes even including extended family members. If you have caregivers, for instance, grandparents or an aunt or an uncle, even pulling them in, if it is indicated that really the issues are more of what's happening within the family as opposed to the child, the child's issues of adjustment. Now, even if you were just seeing the child, this was a situation where you felt like, okay, this is this is something where I'm helping a child cope or adjust or children cope or adjust. How important is it that both parents be involved in communicating with you and in the therapeutic process? I think that's your best case scenario. And it is something that sometimes parents, one parent or or even both parents may have a hard time understanding, you know, but if I'm going to help a child manage going back and forth between two different households, I need to understand from every possible angle what that experience is like. So sometimes, you know, one parent may perceive that the other parent has parenting deficits. That may or may not be true. That's something I need to assess for myself. And, um, and and one of the things that working with both parents allows me to assess for is something called the chameleon effect. So some children will cope with divorce, um, particularly if there's more conflict between the parents, by being a different child with each parent. So, you know, with one parent, they may play 
um, the peacemaker. And with the other parent, they may be the scapegoat. And so the parents see, you know, different behavior from the child. And when that gets reported to the other parent, unfortunately, sometimes it actually increases the conflict, you know, and, and, and so each parent thinks that the other parent is lying or that the child is lying. Correct. They and both accuse the other parent that, no, they're just lying. And so, yes, and that just ramps the conflict up. Mm-hmm. So, but I have no way to assess that if I'm only working with one parent and the child, or if only one parent brings the child for sessions. So I, I generally ask parents to either alternate or if that's not possible because of work restrictions or if a, if a, a you know, parent's out of town and tra- or travels a lot, at least doing it periodically so that I have some sense of that relationship to compare to the other relationship. That makes sense. Now, this goes back to almost the beginning in in the sense of, do you need both parents' permission to see a child or children? That is another great question. So if someone calls my office and says that they are interested in having me see their child, Um, my office manager is going to go through a whole list of questions, one of which includes, do you have an order that dictates parenting time or custody? And if the answer to that is yes, then we need a copy of that before anybody walks through the door. Because one of the things we have to determine is, do both parents need to agree? Um, My experience with adults is they often don't understand the difference between legal custody and physical custody. So they may say, oh, you don't need to get the other parent involved. I have full custody. And then we get the order. And what it says is primary physical custody, joint legal custody. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we're following court orders. That's, That's not only is it a legal issue, that's an ethical issue as well. So once we determine legally if we need consent. And consent is a written consent for purposes of um, the mental health profession. So it's not just a, a, yeah, it's okay for you to see my kid. If if they have joint legal custody, then we need both parents to sign a consent for treatment. Now, is that the legal, I mean, the um, ethical standards that you're governed by, that if it's joint legal custody, that you need both parents' permission? Yes. And then, but let's say one parent has the ability to make that decision without the Mm -hmm. other parent. Now let's look at the ethical side of that. So best practices dictate that we try to work with both parents or caregivers, regardless of the legal situation. So that's actually in our, our ethical guidelines that if you are working with a minor, you make every attempt as appropriate. And of course, there would be exceptions Mm -hmm. to that to try to work with both parents. Now, that can look a lot of different ways. For instance, if there's a DVPO that gives one parent temporary full legal and physical custody, that still doesn't mean that I don't have an obligation to reach out to the other parent and get their input and let them know, I'm going to be working with your child. I'd like to hear any concerns you have. You can ask me some questions about me, how I work with kids, um, what you can expect in terms of parent feedback or parenting assistance. So unless there's a document that says this parent cannot participate, should not have access to, which in, in my 25 years in the field, I think I've seen that once. Correct. So at the very least... I would expect to be communicating with that parent. Um, maybe it's on the phone, maybe it's via you know, email even, but that there is connection and communication and an opportunity for that parent to participate 
um, as is allowed within legal ramifications. Mm -hmm. And just in case listeners don't know, the DVPO is a domestic violence protective order. And since that's a pretty long moniker, we we shorten it. Now, when there's there are state laws on the book which say physicians and, and treating um, people that um, are working with children, that both parents are able to access the records. That's the default. And it, <laughs> it generally says, unless there is an order that says otherwise. Um, but there are times when therapists are making a call that they do not believe that ethically or professionally it is in the child's best interest for that child's records to be released to to a parent, correct? Right. And, and so... Just to clarify, access to does not translate to you get a copy of. Correct. Again, legally and ethically, I am um, obligated, unless an order says otherwise, to share appropriate information. So one of the things I always do the first time I meet with a child, I have the parents also present initially, and we talk about why they're here, why you came to see me. And, you know, if they're a younger child, we use child-friendly language like, you know, I may say, well, I'm a child and family helper. And sometimes people come to me, children and families come to me because they're going through changes. And, you know, I'm here to help with that. If they're older, you know, I use, I'm, I'm a counselor. Here's how I work with children and families. So we talk about confidentiality because children do have a right to confidentiality, even though they're minors. There are limits to that. So again, for smaller children, I explain it typically a little more broadly. If you share something with me, that means you may be in danger. I can't keep that between us. But other things I can keep between us. And if you're worried about something that you want to share, then we can talk about that. Because sometimes, you know, in my experience, usually younger children, you know, maybe they don't like a new step-parent or they're struggling with the parenting time schedule, but they're worried that I'm going to tell the parent that and how that might, what the fallout from that might be. So I do try to reassure. With older kids, the confidentiality piece is key. If they Mm -hmm. feel like I'm going to tell mom and dad everything they say to me, why, why would they tell me anything? Because otherwise they'd be talking to mom and dad. So sometimes that can be tricky with parents because some parents feel like they should know everything. Well, no, you don't get to know everything. Mm -hmm. So I use the analogy of progress reports. You go to school every day. You have hundreds of assignments and activities. The teacher does not call your parent and report everything you did in class today and everything you said. And I'm not going to do that either. The teacher, analogy. <laughs> the teacher does, however, periodically give a progress report. Here's what we're working on. We're, this is the subject matter. Here's how your child is doing. So I tell them, you know, your parents do have a right to know that we're working on your stress management skills. And they have a right to know that you are engaged or not engaged because they are your parents. And so that usually makes everybody happy. Everybody feels comfortable with that. In my experience, when people start asking for records, it's usually because they want to use them legally. Mm-hmm. They're, they're either fishing, looking for something that they can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, point out that the other parent's doing wrong um, or just, you know, some kind of, of evidence gathering. And that is not an appropriate use for uh, mental health records. And so I have an ethical obligation if I believe that it's um, maybe harmful to my client, who in that case, the case scenario we're talking about as a child, then I'm ethically bound to object to the release of that 
information. And then it becomes up to the judge to decide. Right. A court order would be the only thing that can override your discretion as the treating therapist. Correct. That you are not going to reveal the detailed content of the records of their child just because they asked. Yes. And, you know, typically I try to, you know, assess. So if if you're needing, I mean, I may offer a treatment summary, for instance, I may, I have in the past, if if there's been a guardian ad litem appointed or if the Council for Children's Rights has a custody advocacy team working with that child, then I may offer to allow them to have a copy of the records and let them determine what access right. parents like if should get. it's a get. court case. Correct. But if it's generally just parents who are seeking, like, I want the details of the records, they really do have to understand they're going to have to respect your guidance. Correct. That's part of the part of your role. That's right. And so, but typically because I do periodically meet with parents, you know, they are getting some information. They're having a chance to express their concerns. I'm, I can let them know, here's what we're working on. Here's where I think we still need to, to do some work. So they're not being shut out completely. And I would say 99% of the time, that's satisfactory for the parents. Um, so it's, it's really a, a smaller percentage. But um, in and, and another option, we can allow, if we think it's appropriate, a parent to come in and actually go through the records with them, which again is still not the same thing as handing them a copy. My concern about giving copies, besides the fact that there's a privacy issue for the child involved and, and sometimes what the motivation is, is also that once I hand to somebody a copy of my records, I am no longer in control of them and there's no way to determine if that information will be kept private. And I just think that that's important. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you're working with children in conflict or that are going through the conflict of their parents separating or divorcing or there's there's a family change, I was would think that one of the things you're working on giving the, the children the tool for is how to communicate those things and those feelings to their parents and, and how to work through it. So probably part of your process is encouraging the children to open up and, and trust their caregivers or their parents with this information for their own good. Yes. I mean, I would say identifying and processing and then appropriate expression of feelings are pretty standard treatment goals Mm -hmm. that we have with kids. And my preference, if a child has concerns um, that I feel like a parent needs to know, is to have the parent join us. And let's talk about this. It's really going to be okay. Sometimes I'll prep the parent ahead of time if, if I think they maybe need some coaching about how to respond to mm-hmm. what they're going to hear. But yes, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly trying to model and encourage appropriate communication and dialogue between family members. I mean, that's my goal. My job is to work myself out of a job. Correct. Which is hopefully, I think what most of the parents are hoping when they bring the child is that there will be some resolution to the stressors or, or whatever concerns that they they see the child having uh, with it. They're looking for there to be an end date to it. Right. Yeah. So let's, that's a perfect time for me to ask you, what are some of the more common challenges that you see children experiencing when they're parents are going through a divorce or separation. And I realize it's unique um, right. for each child, but generally speaking, um, are there things that you just see repeatedly? Certainly. I think obviously just the change that 
inevitably comes with this process. At least one parent is going to move out of the home. So that means there's going to be a new home for the child to spend time in. And sometimes that home is very different than the one that they've you know, traditionally been in. So, you know, if a child has lived in the same house all their life in a neighborhood where there are lots of children around and things that are easily accessible to them, and the other parent is in an apartment and they can't go outside unless the parent's with them and there aren't other children around, that's that's a big difference for a child in terms of being in one household or the other. So some of the, the most common things are just general adjustment. This is a change. This is different. Some children really struggle with missing the parent they're not with when they're with the other parent. And so one of the things that I encourage parents to look at really carefully is what's the right parenting time schedule for your children? I mean, there, there are some standard options out there, but... Um, if parents are able to work together and, and, and really look at that, they can craft any kind of unique schedule that they want that works best for the child and for the family in general. But that that's another concern. I think fear of the unknown. What else is going to happen? What else is going to change? Um, sometimes parents make the mistake of telling the children they're going to separate way before it actually happens. And so then we have this period of tension and we know something's coming, but we don't have any details. And I really encourage parents, if, if they come see me before mm-hmm. the fact, don't tell the children until you can answer some basic questions like, well, who's who's moving out? Where are they going? What Will I have my own room? What will that look like? I mean, they're concerned about the basics. Right. Exactly how it impacts them. (laughs) Right, of course. (laughs) Their world. Of course they are. For some children, if they're particularly close to one parent, and it's not unusual for children at different stages to prefer one parent over the other, that can bring up issues too. So for instance, if the preferred parent is the one who's moving out and maybe they're not going to be spending as much time with for whatever reason, that may bring on some some grief and stress for that child. And it's not indicative of a lack of love or relationship with the other parent. Sometimes, unfortunately, it may be perceived that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more about, I mean, I, I have children say to me, I just, I just wish I could see my mom or dad anytime I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is if the parents were still together, it would be more like that. Right. I do try to normalize that for them. And I say, well, you know, but that's not true. If mom's on a business trip, you might miss her, but you don't get to see her right away. So what would you do? Well, I would Skype with her. Guess what? You can still do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you try, problem solve. Tr- right. Try yeah. to problem solve. Try to normalize as much as possible. Um, I think it helps when parents can create um, connection with the other parent when the child isn't with them. And not just through a, a Skype session or a phone call, but have a picture of the other parent in the child's room. Um, you know, try try to create similar routines around bedtime and, um, you know, breakfast and those kinds of things to make it feel a little um, less jarring when they go from one home to the other home. Because these mm-hmm. are things, again, that that children struggle with. Um, younger children don't have as good a sense of time. So I encourage parents to get a good old-fashioned fa- paper calendar, put it on the refrigerator, and color code mom days and dad days, or mom days and mom days, <laughs> depending, mm-hmm. or dad days and dad days, depending on the situation. But help the child be able to... Um, 
check the schedule without always having to come to the parent to be able to see kind of when is the next transition um, and preparing the child for the transition. You know, it's it's um, helpful for the child to know, hey, you know, in about an hour, mom, dad is going to be coming to pick you up. So you need to be winding up what you're doing or or we need to get your bag packed or that sort of thing. So they can help with, with just preparing them for the back and the forth. Um, and I think sometimes just listening and understanding that if the child is um, needing to vent their feelings, teaching parents to um, respond reflectively to that and not feel like they have to try to fix it or um, or taking it personally, um, which are probably the two biggest mistakes I see that parents make in that situation. But just being able to say, yeah, it's, this is really hard, isn't it? I know it kind of stinks sometimes that you're having a good time playing you know, with your friend Billy next door and now it's time to transition to the other parent's house. And just being able to acknowledge that, that that's not great. That's not mm-hmm. fun. I don't like it without needing to, or the, um, well, we'll see if your dad will let you stay longer or your mom will let you stay longer. Again, the, the stepping in, looking for a solution. Correct, which in therapy we call rescuing, mm-hmm. right? You yes. can't fix every situation. And so you can acknowledge that, yes, that's hard. I know when you're having a good time, it's hard to stop and go on to the next thing. But guess what? Billy will be here when you come back on Tuesday. And I can even talk to Billy's mom or dad and see if he can come over and play. So that that kind of problem solving mm-hmm. is okay. Trying to rescue them from the feelings of the moment is not really helpful in the long run. Probably good advice whether you're together or not. It is actually. <laughs> it actually is. But in in a in a separation divorce scenario, that kind of response that you just the example you just gave could, I mean, if that's done enough, could lead to a resist-refuse dynamic down the road. And now you've got a whole nother level of counseling intervention that's going to be needed. Mm-hmm. So if you can can respond more um, in a really more helpful way in terms of the big picture in the moment, you can circumvent more difficult problems on down the road. You mentioned this earlier, and I I think this is an important topic to circle back to, which you talked about the protective nature of children, even very young children, about their parents and trying to protect them from bad feelings um, and, and what they take on. Let's talk about that a little bit more. From the counseling and the work that you do with children, what types of things do these children take on sometimes in divorces and separation that parents might be surprised uh, that they've even zoned in on or are worried about? Sometimes the children become adultified, meaning that they take on adult worries. And and sometimes that happens more organically because the child is, is more anxious, a worrier, if you will. So they're looking for things to worry about. Sometimes it happens because parents may overshare information or just not realize that, as the saying, big pictures or little pictures have big ears, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and and children will um, eavesdrop. I, I have kids tell me all the time that they overhear their parents talking. You know, well, mom and dad will tell me to go around the corner, but I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or... Um, Adolescents are known to read text messages, to read email. I have had kids literally hack into accounts because they want to know what's going on mm-hmm. and they feel anxious and then end up they end up learning adult things that they don't need to know about. 
and become worried about money. They may become worried about um, one parent's coping if, if one parent seems to be struggling more than the other parent. They may be worried about other dynamics in the family and how that's playing out. And so then the next progression of that is, is they try to fix it in some way themselves, which in my experience just leads to more conflict mm-hmm. because they don't know how to do it. And, and really they can't. And you talked a bit about the chameleon effect too. Is that like in response to high conflict cases only, or do you see that in just everyday type separations where a child starts becoming one child at one parent's, in one parent's care and another child and I the think others? I think it can develop in either scenario, but it is more likely to flourish long-term when there's more conflict between the parents because the parents aren't talking to each other or their communications um, are of a defensive nature, so they don't really listen to each other. They may talk, but it's more like talking at rather than talking with. And so, for instance, if you don't um, approach the situation with a... So um, Susie said she really doesn't want to take ballet again this year. And the other parent immediately jumps to the defensive of, that's not true. She loves ballet. She tells me that all the time. You just don't want to pay for it. And now we're off and running and they're arguing mm-hmm. instead of taking a, what I call, a, you know, a mindful approach is taking that principle of curiosity and saying, you know, Susie said she doesn't want to take ballet again. I'm wondering what you're hearing about that. And the other parent would say, well, she tells me she loves it. Hmm. That's really curious. I wonder how come she's saying one thing to me and a different thing to you. I think the three of us should talk about this and let's see if we can figure out what's going on. And and I do that with parents sometimes because mm-hmm. I've had children tell me, yep, I did, I did say that and I did say that. Mm-hmm. And then when I ask why, well, they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Right. They want to be agreeable. They, they want to go want along to, to get along. And and so that just has become their way of navigating a situation that for them feels a bit untenable or stressful. But if, if parents aren't having open communication where they're really listening as well as responding, it, it's more likely to flourish and, and again, just increases conflict. Well, from where I sit, I'm obviously a big fan of um, parents gathering whatever tools and resources they can to help their children and themselves navigate um, this divide. But let's talk a little bit about the types of therapists or professionals that are out there that work with children and families and the differences between their licenses or their credentials or their experience. And so what types of things would help a parent identify the best helper they can find um, regardless of their circumstances? Okay, yeah, that's a great question too. So one of the confusions that some people have is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. A psychiatrist is an MD, they can prescribe medications. Most psychiatrists don't do therapy. They do medication management. Psychologists, there's licensed professional counselors, which is what I am. There are licensed marriage and family therapists and licensed clinical social workers. So those are sort of the four mental health professionals. And there's some overlap in what we do. Most of us do therapy with the proper training. Anybody with those credentials can do assessment and, and whether or not they're the right fit for your child would 
depend on further training and experience and expertise and and also the approaches that you think might most benefit your child. For instance, because I do a lot of expressive arts work, sometimes children who have seen um, a more traditional talk therapist and, and were not able to engage appropriately with that person may get referred to me because they're, you know, quote, artsy, unquote, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fine. And it doesn't mean an expressive arts therapist uh, does talk. We do use uh, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques typically, um, but we use expressive media um, as a primary form of engagement as opposed to just verbal interaction. So for a lot of, of children and adolescents, that provides more comfort. Not everybody can just sit and talk about what's going on. I find, though, that even in my family work, um, sometimes engaging in um, specific structured activities um, or expressive arts interventions can be helpful at different stages of therapy, depending on what the goals are for each session. Um, but so you so you want to you want to look for a licensed therapist if you're going the therapy route, but then you should further investigate what that person's particular approaches are, um, what their background and training are, how much experience they have in the areas um, that are pertinent to your child or, or family situation. And then another um, another service that I offer is I'm a child specialist with our co- collaborative divorce professionals group here in Charlotte. And I mean, you know, I do, I have the same skill set regardless of which hat I wear, but a child specialist is more of a consultant and coach. I do work with parents and, and sometimes help with parenting plan development. I help them understand the, their child's needs, what they're going through. Sometimes that's general developmental information. Sometimes it's specific to separation and divorce. I may also help them with, with co-parenting communication and resources, I often will meet with the children at least once. I find it helpful if I'm going to try to help parents develop a plan of action to have some idea who their children are. Um, but sometimes I do more than that. Sometimes I meet with everybody together to, to problem solve and to to figure out how to move things forward. So all of those things are very similar to what I might do as a therapist. Um, probably one of the bigger differences is if, if they're coming to me for therapy, I do have to have an identified patient. I have to, that person has to have a diagnosis. Those things are part of the required record keeping. If I'm working with them as a child specialist, we don't have to do any of that. Um, But it really does depend on what level of intervention is needed. Sometimes as a child specialist, I may recommend therapy for the children or for the whole family. And, And then part of my role may become sort of being a, um, a treatment coordinator, if you will. So I can talk to treatment providers and then share information that's appropriate with attorneys. Um, and then this is all in, usually in collaborative or cooperative cases. Mm-hmm. But I've actually done it even as being court appointed in that role to, to try to assist. One thing I know particularly is you work with younger children. Yes. But that is not something just everyone who's a licensed therapist does. Correct. Even if they're a family therapist even if they're a child, an adolescent therapist. Correct. There is a unique skill set and training with very young children. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I do play therapy as well. I think I mentioned earlier, I I have a, so my main office is an art studio space with uh, the traditional couch and chairs in, in one corner of the room. And then I also have a playroom. 
And, and everyone who works for me also is trained to do play therapy. And so with very young children, typically we use a non-directive play therapy approach. Young children are wonderful at engaging with the appropriate media and expressing what's going on in their world and their understanding of that through play. They just do it naturally. Play is a child's language. It's, it's how they express themselves. And anyone who has children has seen their, their child role-playing them at some point or another. It's, it's always kind of interesting. Oh, that's what I look like mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm mad, right? Or that's what I look like, um, you know, when I'm stressed out. And so children will do that naturally. So typically in, in a non-directive approach, my job is to provide a therapeutic container. So I am interacting with the child. I will engage in the play as the child invites me to. But even if they don't, if they're initially um, exploring the room, I'm tracking them verbally. I am responding reflectively. So I'm, I'm teaching them feelings vocabulary. I am um, setting limits as needed. I may be helping with um, decision-making and building confidence through um, by making observations like, wow, you were able to figure that out all by yourself. So there's all these, this therapeutic language that we also use with adults. We put it into more of a child format and we do it in a playroom as opposed to um, across from the couch from each other. So, it, and that's something that, that I think is really important to help parents understand. Um, another service that we offer at our center, um, which is a little more unique, is filial therapy. So I just finished a 10-week filial therapy workshop for foster parents um, through the Foster Village program. We did, we did that as a community service. And it's a 10-week training program where we train parents to do therapeutic play sessions at home with their children. And so they learn some of those skills, like reflective responding, the tracking, the non-punitive limit setting. And then they do play sessions at home with their children and they record them and bring them back. And we, you know, we look at the, the video and talk about play themes and the skills that the parents are learning and what they can learn about their child through their play. So it, it can be an adjunct to therapy. It can be a primary form of therapy. Um, we also do family play therapy. So it's not unusual for me I'm working with young children, if they're struggling with the separation, I may have both parents and the child come in and we do some family play sessions to help the parents navigate better with the child, to help the child still feel that sense of family and connection, um, and to teach them some skills. So the parents really need to sort of understand what the goals are for this child. They need to understand what it is that they need, perhaps as the adult, what it is they're looking for, what problem they're trying to solve, but also what the child might need because there's such a range of things that various therapists can offer from correct coaching, right. which doesn't even involve their necessarily being a problem, but more just identifying some solutions that might work for this group. Sure. To diagnosis, to therapy, to redirection, to correction. It's really important that they be specific when they're interviewing or talking to a potential therapist about what what their desired outcome is or what it is they're, they're reaching for. Yes. It, I mean, it's it's certainly more helpful for us if we have some idea of what your concerns are. Sometimes it does require that you come in for the intake appointment before we can really pinpoint what type of service would probably be the best place to start or what might meet your needs best. 
you know, every situation is different, but it does help if the parent can think about, you know, what are your concerns? What would you maybe hope to accomplish by coming in or bringing your child in or, or bringing your whole family in? Well, there is so much information and we could talk about this for hours. You've done lectures and and coaching sessions, so I know we could go on. But if people want more information and they want to reach out to you specifically, what would be the best way for them to find you? Probably just to call the office. Um, Our number is 704-523-5567. If you press extension 5, you'll get the office manager. And that's a much quicker route to go than leaving me a voicemail. I'm usually with people during the day, so I don't have a lot of time to return calls. You can also go to our website. It's uh, the Center for Creativity and Healing.com. Well, great. Well, we hope you come back and talk to us again. Uh, but this was really wonderful information. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully, it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice, if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.